questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today I welcome to the show Kimberly Mead, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor, who will be discussing her practice in an area of specialty, trauma and adults of adoption. Welcome to the show, Kimberly. Hello, it's wonderful to be here with you. It's good to have you. So um, what are your credentials and experience? So I am an LPC supervisor. I am also a NARM therapist, and NARM is an approach specifically for attachment, neuroaffective relational model. It's a mouthful. Um, and I went to St. Edward's University here to get my LPC license, and then I did my undergrad in photography and art in San Jose, California. That's awesome. Um... So your practice right now, are you practicing under your name or under a, um, a PLLC, like a business name? Or So I practice under Kimberly Mead Counseling. I am transitioning to an agency that I created since I have six interns, and I created an agency called Resilience Austin. And we're all attachment and somatic focused and all trauma-informed in our care. Um, we're uh, LGBTQI allies. And some of us have also gotten training in that. Um, But we all work from an attachment perspective regarding there are specialties within each one of us. But Resilience Austin is is my group. Very cool. Very cool. Um, Do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? So I accept Blue Cross Blue Shield. Uh, when I first came on to being an LPC, it was the one that was easier to get onto and had pretty decent uh, payments. Um, I've stayed on that one. I have tried to get on a couple others, but their panels are closed, which I always find fascinating that they're yeah, closed. It's weird, the um, I always wanted to have flexibility in who I worked with that although I do have a private pay, I also wanted to make sure that I could serve individuals who couldn't necessarily always use, you know, always come up with three or four or $500 in a month for therapy. And I like to think of all the work that I do as long-term work with 
long-term relationships with clients. So I have clients who come back to me in two or three years. I have clients who use insurance. And if there's a change, sometimes if I have the flexibility, I'll be able to work with them longer. So I kind of think of it the way like you do, uh, the way movie stars, you know, they they get the big bucks for some things so that they can actually serve other populations and other um, Mm -hmm. areas that they really want to be in. Yeah, totally. I like that. I like the way you put that. Um, And that's uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield PPO plans, right? Their HMO plans, I think, have recently shifted to using Blue Cross Blue Shield people again. They were using Magellan. So I think it's uh, the majority of Blue Cross Blue Shield, all, almost all of PPO that I've ever interacted with, I can work with, and more and more of the HMO ones I can now work with. Okay, cool. Um, do you have a sliding scale? I do. Um, what I do is when clients come in, uh, I do have my lowest slots right now are full. Um, what I do is I offer them a range. So I know that when I worked at a nonprofit, um, we had people who, if you had had, I worked in a nonprofit that dealt with grief and loss. If somebody had died, they might be the breadwinner. So what your income is doesn't always equal what you have available right. in your budget. So I just offer an automatic range and let my clients you know, tell me what is in their financial reach within that. And then if they can't reach my particular sliding scale, I reach out to the community and try to find somebody who who can actually work with them. So a little bit of the honor system there. Very much so. Very much so. I think sometimes, you know, having people, for me, how I structured it, having people have to prove their income has the potential of shaming that somehow Mm -hmm. you would earn a certain amount of money says, I get to decide what you can pay for therapy. Um, that's why I prefer to just say, this is, I've already looked at my own finances. I know I'm comfortable and I can allow my clients to be in that struggle about money. You know, they set the number and I see them struggle with it, but being able to have that sliding scale and feel totally comfortable with it. Generally, I offer it to people who are already working with me rather than people who are just coming in who are new. That way I can make sure if something changes within the relationship that would impact us continuing to work, I always have space for the people I'm already connected with. Makes sense. Okay. Do you have weekend or evening appointments? I do not have weekend ones anymore. I used to work six days a week. um, And over the years, for different reasons, I've started to pull back. Um, I do work to seven o'clock at night for certain clients. Cool. I do too. I, I generally work 10 to seven. Yeah, I'm not I a morning used, person. <laughs> me either. Ten is a is a stretch, but um, I I just actually switched to working four days a week, Monday through Thursday. I used to work every other Sunday, mm-hmm. and I just pulled back on that. So I'm really excited to have three days, quote unquote, off. But you know, we do administrative things. <laughs> yeah, so I have three days, quote unquote, off now. But you know, we end up spending a day or two doing administrative things and uh, recording podcasts and the like. Absolutely. Having one day off to do admin, I think has been essential in keeping me um, up to speed with all of my business work so I can be really present with my clients. Mm -hmm. So necessary. So um, is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? No, it's not. Um, I went to school to become a graphic designer And I did end up in that field for about 20 some odd years. 
And I was a web designer, a UI designer, a graphic designer. I ended up as a communications director. Um, And all of it related to, for me, all of it related to really understanding somebody else's needs and understanding how to meet them. Uh, so I did that for many years. My my company was purchased, and I saw the writing on the wall. And I went back and looked at what is a what is a something that I've always had in my life that keeps showing up, so I can know which career to move to. And helping other people, learning about other people, learning about their world kept showing up in my artistic work. It kept showing up in my personal, um, you know, where I would devote my time to. And so I ended up going back to St. Ed's to get my degree. Nice. And my understanding is you do some photography as well. I do. I photograph for theaters uh, here in Austin, and I'm a member of two or three companies. And what I do is on their dress rehearsal, I go in and take photos. And I help tell the story that they're telling. So it's, it's another artist's interpretation. So mine isn't as much documentation, which some photo, some photographers that directors bring into mine is I want to create a story that makes people interested in learning the story that is That's that so particular meta. production. <laughs> I know. Um, and, and the theaters that I work for, the directors uh, who hire me understand that that's what I bring for them. Very cool. Very cool. So what drew you to being a therapist? I think I've always really enjoyed sitting and being with people. I've really, you know, enjoyed learning about what their life is like. The, the reason I went to grad school in particular, the reason that drew me there was actually to work with adults of adoption, that I'd experienced something in my life that threw me off course. And I recognized that adoption had a lot to do with it and that it wasn't something that was really being addressed in therapy. I was lucky to have fallen into a therapist who worked with attachment and who understood uh, some of the dynamics that were inside of adoption. But I came through those four years of work really to understand how it had impacted me. And so I wanted to go back to school because I knew that I really loved sitting with people. And then I had this idea that I really loved being able to bring something that was underserved and understanding of adoption for adults who were still impacted by this event that had happened to them and was really hurting their relationships, really hurting them, really claim themselves. And I, those two things really led me to say, oh, I think I want to be in, in the therapy world. I want to be sitting on a couch with a person being really, really present. Cool. So tell us a little bit about yourself, hobbies, interests, TV shows, deepest, darkest secrets, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, you've heard what is sort of a hobby, which is the photography. It's also kind of a passion. It's nice not to have it as the thing that has to put uh, food on my table, truthfully, because then I'm, I'm freed up to work with who I want and be really artistic. Mm-hmm. That's a huge part of it. Doing home renovations um, has been a huge part of it. I love painting and hammering things and learning how to use a drill and learning you know, what a miter says and how to make things myself like I really love that physicality of it and seeing the change uh, and being a little bit daring sometimes and like what can we do with this Um, and then I think you know one of the things that people learn from me and I think you and I have already touched on this is just having having 
I hate the word pets, honestly, having these furry companions. So I am very much a, a dog mom. I have two cats as well, but um, my dog Lila and then my dog Gus, who's passed, are just kind of like the things that bring me into the moment and just make it feel like, I don't know, I say every day when I get up, I go pet her and I'm like, it's like Christmas morning when a kid walks out, it's like everything else falls to the wayside. And it's just a moment of like shiny, sparkly joy. And that to me is like a secret, like how, how am I kind of kid-like? I'm kid-like when I'm with my dogs. Love it. I, I experience that same kind of Christmas joy every morning with my dog as well. I let her sleep with me, so um, sometimes I get licked awake in the morning, um, at which point we'll snuggle a little bit. Or, you know, sometimes I've had her stand on my chest and sniff my eye, and that's how I wake up. <laughs> I would love that. Lila has little what we call little Flintstone feet, so she can't quite jump onto the bed. <laughs> um, I still sleep with a teddy bear, so that's how I wake up most mornings. That's cool. Um, so in working with adults of adoption, what modalities do you draw upon? So a lot of it is attachment work, uh, somatic experiencing. And then over the last few years, I've been studying NARM. And that is an attachment-focused approach for developmental trauma. And when I knit together that particular approach with the challenges that adoption offers, it's it's such a remarkable match. So, so much of the work in the last few years um, combines somatic experiencing and trauma work and attachment, but this, but NARM is really given like, like a focus to it, like a really, a container where I'm like, ah, I can really sit with these things, these struggles, these strategies that are coming up with individuals in a way that is so much more grounded for me at this point in my career. What's a, the basic tenant of NARM? I'm not too familiar. Um, you know, when you study it, it's like, it's so nuanced and yet it's also so clear. Uh, it really is moving individuals towards agency with the idea that throughout our early upbringing, we have moments of, um, milestones kind of that we reach in attachment and there are disruptions to that there's disruptions in the relationship and so the individual um, figures out a strategy to compensate for that missing piece of attachment how to get the attachment when something about the attachment is unavailable and those strategies continue with us forward and need to be healed and to be met and so we consider that the, the child consciousness. And when we move into adulthood, it's, it's an approach that is generally applied to working with adults. Um, we know that adults have agency. And yet we're using these strategies from a time where we didn't have those choices. And so we want to move into the place where we can hold the yes and. We can hold multiple things to be true for ourselves now, and we can successfully navigate them as opposed to falling into what our strategies to navigate them used to be. So it's very much an approach that moves us towards agency. Um, it does hold elements of somatic um, experiential work, uh, of being very present for the client. It's very non-directive, 
in regards of we're not directing where the client goes, but we are holding the strategies feet to the fire by saying, what do you really want for yourself? What is, what is your greatest need in this moment? And right there, usually people are thrown into their strategies to avoid really being able to claim agencies for themselves. So NARM fits so well with working with individuals who have had these um, struggles regarding attachment. And when you look at adoption, you're really talking about a disruption of attachment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, me, somebody who doesn't have a lot of knowledge on this topic, and I'm sure there's many other therapists out there who don't have a, a lot of knowledge on this topic. Um, what would you say is important for us to know? I mean, I know that's such a broad question, but, you know, um, what would be the things that, you know, like you just, you really need to know these things, um, at least at the, the base, at the core? You're right. It's a, it's, it's a big umbrella to use the word uh, adoption because there are so many things that happen inside of it. Um, you've got different, each generation of adoption because there's different attitudes towards it. There's different pressures. Um, there's different um, groups of people inside of that adoption. But the echoes that we really hear that often, often hit adoptees come from an understanding that in order for adoption to happen, that child is not a blank slate. Something happened to them to come into adoption. There was a choice made to change the course of their life. And if we were to say, you know, if a child was born and their mother had died in childbirth, I think we would understand the confusion, the pain, and the loss. We need to apply an understanding that adoption is a confusing moment, event that continues to echo. It has a lot of loss. It has a lot of grief. It has a lot of managing for the, for the, entire family, I believe, for everyone in that triad, which is the biological parents, the adoptive parents, and the child, there's very little in there that is about choice. There's a lot of choice that's been taken away to get to this place of we'll create a family. And so understanding that there is grief, and inside of that grief, there's going to be all the things if you were working with grief, which are anger and confusion and denial and Um, you know, conforming to it and how to hold it and move forward knowing that this has happened. So really understanding that there's a level of trauma, there's a level of grief that since I'm working with individuals that were originally babies and or children and then are adults, that they come with a wound. Mm -hmm. And this isn't about, you know, saying adoption is good or bad, but to get to a place of adoption for the biological entity that is that young child, that feels like a traumatic, too much, too fast, too soon, almost like an annihilation, like where do I go for safety? Even if the person is holding us who is really safe, we know on a very physical, biological, something's something's very different. And because we're a baby, it's happening too fast to us. That separation, it's just, it's a lot. So when I think um, therapists 
or individuals who are in a relationship with an adoptee, you might be seeing behaviors that seem more extreme to you or numb or cold, and you may not realize that adoption has a high likelihood of just kind of amplifying that, that response. Okay. So yeah, grief, trauma, um, they're not blank slates. Um, mm-hmm. The story is complex and complicated. And there's a, I would also add that there's a lot of splitting that can happen. There's a lot of splitting of how people view adoption, both from mm-hmm. the outside and from the inside. Let's talk about terminology for a second. Um, what terminology, I, I know, you know, it's difficult for communities to agree on terminology, but what, what generally is the accepted terminology um, regarding adoption just in general? Um, so some of that sometimes has to do with what generation you're in. My generation, so I was adopted in the early 70s. I came to know the term adoptee. Uh, right now, I think we lean into saying um, an adult of adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about biological parents, you also have, again, you might have generational times and each person kind of claims for themselves what is most comfortable. Some people will say biological parent. Some people will say natural parent. Some people um, would say first mother, first family. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so, so much of this is, it's, it's a very personal choice. So, mm-hmm. And so listening to the people who are deepest inside of it, I, I you know, particularly think that the adoptee is like right in the center. They have the least amount of agency. They don't make any choices. Um, they're just having to respond. And then you have the adoptive family as well as the biological family. And then you also have outside of this traditional triad, you have aunts and uncles and grandparents and friends and how people embrace this or, or perceive this to start in the very center and say, what is, what is the right term for the person who is most affected by it? So for me, I would say I'm comfortable with adoptee and I'm comfortable with biological parent. What's interesting is when I talk about my adoptive parents, there is no qualifier in front of it. It's just mom. It's just dad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have found that sometimes inside of working with adoptees, the way we emphasize the person we were raised with, the adoptive family, we go mom, mom, dad, dad, as if to try to help the person who's with us understand the the depth of the, this is the person who was there. This is the person I'm attached to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's been... It's go to the person who's really in the middle of it to find out what that terminology is. Just know that there are going to be different terms. So as a therapist, we would definitely want to mirror the terms that the the client would use. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've had adoptees, you know, use terms that personally I'm not as comfortable with my real mom. I'm never going to change that for them. That is exactly the right terminology for them. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't even have to question them and say, is that really? Nope. Mm -mm." That is absolutely the right terminology for them. And they're telling you something about their relationship and about how they interact with this person and to really be with them in that. And to just, you, you just meet them with exactly how they understand themselves. Okay. Good to know. Um, How can adoption or how does adoption act attachment style? 
So again, the strategy to manage what goes on in our world, I think affects our attachment style. Um, So there's a lot of splitting that can happen. So some adoptees will go to the side of being very conforming and very compliant. And that's where you get the attachment style that they're always kind of like um, that anxious attachment style. Are you going to go away? I really need you to stay. And, you know, they're always sensing that something's going to be lost or something's going to be out of, out of their reach. Um, and then you might have the, what sometimes makes the news, unfortunately, which is more of this quote unquote reactionary or to, you know, this pushing away or even the ambivalent, like mm, um, this kind of cold or numb side where we think uh, an adoptee looks all poised and they're kind of in an ivory tower. They're kind of, you know, not connected. Both of those will show up depending on which way they went in order to preserve the relationship with their new family in order to make sense of what is my best, you know, and this isn't a logical thing that happens. This isn't a narrative thing where, you know, this baby is making a choice. This baby is making a choice because they fall into this is, this is the way to get the reaction from the parents that end up protecting them. So when we talk about attachment styles, either of those can actually really appear. Um, And just recognizing that it comes not only from their, what we as therapists might say, oh, this is your family of origin, which is, you know, the mom and dad they were raised with, but wait a second, there is a second family. There is this event that says before the event happened, there is a second family. And to see if that might have influenced how this particular attachment style came forward. One of the things in the adoption community that can happen is that people view if there's a struggle when you're an adult, you must have had a difficult family that you were raised in. And that can be very confusing because you can have adoptive parents who, you know, yes, you can have adoptive parents who are are abusive and are cold or um, just like any struggle that you're going to have inside of a family. But when we look at it, we think, oh, you must have come from a traumatic adoption family. And it's like, not necessarily, you may have had really stable, solid family. They may not have had this information because we don't generally require very much education inside of adopting a kiddo as far as trauma or as far as attachment. Um, There's no consistency of how much a parent will get trained on this. And so if we recognize there's two sets here. There's two experience, at least two experiences. You may even have more if you have placements. So you have disruptions in the family that could lead to these type of attachment styles. So you don't just look at what happened when you were growing up, which is why on my intake form, I ask, because I work with adoption, I ask where you adopted because it'll give me a hint of, am I working with numerous families? And that might never come up for an adoptee or a person of adoption to mention in therapy. It might for somebody who's a stepchild. It might for somebody who has had a family member who died. It doesn't always come up automatically for individuals who are adopted to mention, oh, by the way, I was adopted when I was three days old or three months old or age two. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. So, you know, I was looking at my notes here and Uh, one of the things you had sent me says that adoption means a loss has to occur. Um, Can you talk or speak a little bit to the, those, that variety of losses? 
or of loss. <laughs> so the very first loss for the baby or young child, um, because not all adoptees are adopted within a few weeks or even a few months, um, is a loss of that connection that um, to the biological mother. They've spent nine months inside the womb getting used to sounds and all of the binding and the bonding chemicals that nature gives us. And so literally mom is mothership. And when they come into the world, um, we have a mothership that we're still connected to for many, many years. And then we start to separate. They are a container for us, even regarding our ego and understanding ourselves. And so the very first loss is a jolt. No matter what loving arms we might be put into, they are still different. And so that loss for a baby who doesn't really have a narrative memory that somebody else could walk them through or that there was time where it happened, it was a transition, that in and of itself is a loss. And it may be something that... Um, we don't even recognize continues to impact us, that we are bracing against annihilation. We're bracing against this loss. We're bracing against the grief because many times the adoptive family who might even be waiting there, this is a joyous moment for them. So there's already a misattunement mm -hmm. between it's a joyous moment for them. It might even be a stressful moment for them, probably is, but it's not a grief-stricken moment. And the baby doesn't know how to interpret grief. I mean, it's hard enough for us adults, right? But the yeah. baby just figures out, how do I survive this? And so again, that's when you start almost immediately, you've got this loss that is going to impact how safe is the world? Am I welcomed into the world? Is this world you know, continuous? Did, did I get the type of automatic comforting that I thought I should? And so we could see some of these events happen in other situations where children have had to um, you know, they're, they're preemies and they're put into a NICU. There, mm -hmm. there are circumstances. So adoption isn't the only place that this happens, but it is absolutely assured because we've already got two families. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of, you might have, there's at least, if I recall, six, possibly seven different paths to how a child gets adopted because there's domestic adoptions and international adoptions. There's um, did you go through a state agency? Did, is it open? Is it closed? Is it a private adoption? What type of private adoption? Is it that, you know, a birth mother came there? Is it that it's, you know, through a religious organization? There's so many different ways that this mm -hmm. happens, but I guarantee you there are two sets of families and one of them disappears. And so that is the initial first loss. And now we add on the potential of well, what happens if you add foster care mm -hmm. and then these kiddos come to you and it used to be i don't think they do this any longer at least i i understand they're not supposed to that we used to place kids in a way so that they wouldn't get attached so that they would be this somehow this blank slate ready to be adopted we want you know we moved them around every you know every three to six months with the idea of like, we're preserving the fact that we don't want to hurt them by them getting attached and then get moved, but we just taught them. Yeah. What did we teach them? Right. That's yeah. Ridiculous. Um, so you've got, it's, it's its own 
remarkable work to work with individuals of the foster care um, with, within all of these places as this is a loss. Uh-huh. So these children don't start quite the same way if, if they were you know, in the womb and they come into this family and this family continues the line forward. There's already two lines and one of them more often than not just disappears. There's no one to tell you about what the pregnancy was like. There's no one to tell you what the labor was like. There's no one to tell you why you have the name you have or that maybe you had a different name. Uh-huh. Um, so there's a lot of other losses that happen in that too. There's loss of your ancestry. There's loss of knowledge of, was I celebrated? Was there a baby shower that I was actually present at? Because there could, there could be a baby shower, but you might not have been um, present there because they were celebrating having a child, but you might have the sense of, but was it me you were celebrating? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So lots of losses inside that are a bit invisible, um, even in the best of, of circumstances. That's a lot. Um, I know you just talked about the uh, various different types and I guess, means of adoption. Um, How can adoption be seen as akin to human trafficking? So that is one of the things that appears even in the forums where adults of adoption are talking about it is there is a sense that they have been purchased. Particularly when you start talking about international adoptions. Mm-hmm. that children, you have these biographies that come to a parent, an adoptive parent, and they get to choose which child they'll have. They're being evaluated. Do they have enough money to do this? Do they have the right circumstances to do this? Um, there's documents that sometimes people will find that look like a receipt for you almost. They're a receipt for the legal paperwork. They're a receipt for this, but it still has this flavor of I've become a commodity. Mm -hmm. And so to recognize that inside the adoption story is the need to fit into this new family. And again, going back to that loss, you've, you've had at least two families. You need to fit into this new family. And I've heard individuals of adoption say, I know they wanted a child. They didn't want me though. Because it's the idea of like, oh, they got to they got to choose from a variety. So there can be this sense of I am a doll or I am a placeholder. I am not what you really wanted. I am purchased. I am supposed to be perfect. You can hear like all the fractures that can happen here. I need to be perfect or else you'll mm-hmm. give me away. Because I was given away once. Somebody mm-hmm. made a choice. Um, you, you can hear the, I, I need to conform. My autonomy gets compromised. I, I can't break out of this because I need this family. I know the, the one thing that we're, you know, many of us don't know, which is my, my parents will never go away, right? Adults of adoption will say, yeah, we always know they could. They could make that choice. Somebody did. And so it, it becomes a sense of, I, I became a commodity. 
Mm-hmm. And and that's part of the numbing that can happen as well. Like in order to make sense of why would a baby go elsewhere, just like a child of divorce says, oh, this is my fault that my parents are doing this. A, a child who comes from adoption, again, even with loving families, can get the sense of like, oh, this there's got to be some responsibility on me. And so we get this sense of like othership. And mm-hmm. adoptees often have that where um, so many individuals of adoption that I've talked to say that they feel this like there's an othership. I'm an alien or there's there's a, a glass wall between me and everybody else or I'm just an observer. The sense of belonging is is challenging for them to open up to letting in because of the sense of rejection and the protection against rejection. So again, you get the sense of like I was purchased. But when we talk about international adoptions, um, we start to get into, oh, right, that takes a lot of money. And it takes, it takes a lot of commitment as well. But it takes mm-hmm. a lot of money to be able to do that. And so that's where we can get um, into these discussions about human trafficking. So if it can be seen in that way, you know, why, why adopt? The simplest and most complicated answer is that there are kids who do not have parents who can raise them for whatever reason. And although we would like to be able to help heal many of those families, there are times where that can't happen. That a family um, has so much pressure upon them that being able to say, I step away and have somebody who wants a child who is in a circumstance where they can invite a child and want to invite a child into their world um, and form a family, we don't want those children necessarily left alone. And that's, you know, again, even inside the adoption world, there's some splitting. There are um, groups on one side who would say adoption should never happen and you should preserve the family no matter what. There's got to be some relative. And then there's the other side, uh, which leans into, you know, a family is who you create, who you choose and how mm-hmm. you, how you fulfill that obligation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the hard reality of it is that there is a need for children to be with people who can provide them a loving, stable, solid place we just need to make sure that that's not the only story we understand is happening. Uh, we still need to be fighting for families to be healthier uh, so that this doesn't come about. We still need, um, you know, in certain countries, we have political reasons. Uh, we have reasons of, um, you know, you're too young. You're, so, you're supposed to be able to go on and go to college and you're not married. So we still have a lot of reasons that adoption happens that puts a lot of pressure on the biological parents. Um, but there will always probably be a need for adoption because these kids, there are some kids who really just, their families cannot take care of them. Yeah. Yeah. How is adoption experience as knowledge without a narrative? So one of the ways I came to understand that was um, there was a debate on should you know at what age should we tell children that they're adopted and because it causes disruption it is it is confusing it's a different story than maybe a lot of our our peers will have and one of the statements inside of that was you're not telling them something they don't they didn't experience they were there for it 
Mm-hmm. So more often than not, it happens at an incredibly young age. Now, we still have you know, kids who are 8 and 10 and 15 who are being adopted. We've, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's 50% who are under the age of 2. I'd have to look at numbers to get the exact number. So you've got kiddos who don't have a narrative memory, but mm-hmm. emotions have memory. They just don't have the story. We experienced our adoption. This is an event that happened to us. Again, it goes back to that loss of something was going on for us. We may not have conscious memory of it as far as I can't say like, oh, June 17th, blah, blah, blah happened. And then my mother did this. And then I was handed over here. I don't have all the pieces. Most adoptees don't have all the pieces of what happened to them. There are gaps, actually. Three days might feel like a huge gap to the sense of babyhood. Three years, if we don't have anyone who can fill in that information. So when we talk about being able to have an experience we feel it. We know something is off regarding rejection, connection, sense of self. And then we do have a lot of subtle things that are happening in our society, a lot of messages about adoption that we pick up on. Once you have an ear for it, you're like, oh, I hear stuff pretty much every night on some TV program that is referencing the bonds of blood or the fact of stepchildren or adopted children. But if your ear isn't tuned to it, you don't hear that we're getting a lot of messages about it too. And we're just incorporating those into our sense of self, trying to make sense of it without actually discussing it, without actually understanding that our reactions are somatic. Some of it's narrative. And then some of the struggles that we're having are because of those first two things, the narrative and the somatic. So yeah, we have a lot of memory without having the narration around it. Well, trauma stores itself in the body, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking my mind was wandering a little bit. And I thought, you know, what about somebody who is, I guess, you know, I don't want to say adult or teen, adult or teen of adoption, and say they come out as trans, for example, and then their family rejects them. I mean thinking about all the different things that can arise and come out of that, you know, right. it's almost like confirmation of their fears. Exactly. And we'll do anything not to have that fear confirmed. And oftentimes the things that we do to not have it confirmed end up leading to us getting them confirmed. Self-fulfilling prophecies. Uh, exactly. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, that sense of rejection and how can we avoid it? And remember, there's so many different things that we can do to avoid it. And so, yes, now you get this extra, let's have this intersectionality of you have an individual who is in a family and something about them is not the quote unquote, you know, norm that we've been exposed to that's supposed to be what everybody does. And here we have these extra layers of like, oh, this person, you know, is, is trans, this person is a lesbian. And they get rejected. And there you are again, that family can't be family. You have to protect yourself from that. And that's something that is different about you would be worthy of you being kicked out of the family unit. 
And that would double down on that, almost like that baby consciousness trying to make sense of why was I in one place? And then I was, I'm, I'm in pain. So again, I'll make the story of there must be something about me. And now yeah. as an adult, you do something to be truthful to yourself. You get rejected for it. Yeah. So you've got multiple layers of how this can show up again and again and make whatever the individual is going through extra complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are some common misconceptions about adults of adoption? So how do I put this? Um, the misconception is that until you ask them, you can't know what this really means to them. So when somebody else says, oh, that's wonderful. Adoption is such a beautiful gift. Or, oh, what's it like to be in a family that's not really yours? Because sadly enough, those are responses we get. Um, yeah, I, I shake my head too. I've had adoptive parents who will tell me, you know, strangers will come up to them and just make statements. They seem to think they can make statements about their kids. Like, what is it like mm-hmm. to raise somebody who's not your kid? That still happens when we're adults. So really, you know, I think the misconception is that until you've asked that individual, you're working off of stories. And to be curious and open to what their experience is and that whatever it is, is their truth. No matter what mm-hmm. you've seen on TV, no matter if you know, you're like, find my family um, or go on, you know, this is what it was like for my friend. Um, the only person who can really speak to it is the person who's inside of it. And then you'll know what, what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, there's splitting inside of it that we think of, again, oh, that's such a horrible thing, or oh, that's such a wonderful thing. And it's like, well, the story, it's it's so much more real and so much more personal than either of those two kind of fairy tales, than anything that could be shown on TV. Um, it's just a real person who has a complex relationship. And they may tell you, it's perfectly fine. Like, I just love my family and everything's been good and I've had a good life. And that will be their reality. The misconception is that um, you could jump in knowing what it was like for them. So just being really open and curious and realizing that you really don't have their portrait yet. You don't don't have their story. Mm -hmm. I like how you brought portrait you know, just given your work in photography, that was a, an interesting choice of words. Yeah, yeah. I, I think of, um, there, there's a, the longer you sit, the more becomes available, the more you realize that there's far more story if you just silence your own, you know, nattering story inside your head and just listen to what's in front of you and let the person kind of morph. It's like watching a beautiful piece of artwork and you sit down and you really spend time and you go in and out of, oh, I understand it. And then you fall back into, oh, here's something else that comes. And then the light changes and you're like, oh, here's this other element that comes forward. And I think of the story of adoption as a constant 
ever-changing story of identity. And to think that the people who are in relation to that adoptee, if they can be open to understanding that it's complex and that they don't have the story, because the adoptee doesn't have the story either. They're always kind of shifting and changing and learning and re-experiencing and undercovering, um, uncovering like these, oh, I, I didn't know that about myself. And it's just amplified because there are things that are just out of our reach of knowing. We're not going to probably know our ancestors. We're not going to know that first family story. There are a lot of stories about us that are going to be a little bit elusive. Um, so the misconception is that that you can understand adoption. You can understand elements of adoption, absolutely, and then to just sit with it and let it be whatever it is for that that person who's right in front of you. Let them tell you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there anything else you think is important to say or for the general public to know about adults of adoption before we switch gears to more about you as a therapist? Sure. Um, that it impacts our relationships and that it can sometimes be our interactions with people can be uh, misread unless you want to understand that adoption is still contributing to it. Um, because there are so many echoes. There's, there can be coldness or there can be kind of like flare-ups regarding getting very frustrated very quickly. There can, there's just so many nuances that if you add into like, oh, this person... It's, it's kind of like if you had a broken bone and it healed really well and nobody knew about it, but when you were walking, all of a sudden you stumbled. Mm-hmm. And if somebody next to you knew, oh, hey, there's a reason for that, it might be a little easier to keep the relational aspect open and connected because that, a, that person you know, has a pain that they're trying to figure out how to go through life with. And it may have healed really, really well, And it may, you know, something may put pressure on it and may break again. But just for the average public to know, like, hey, this is a trauma. It involves grief and all the complexities in grief. And it's nothing particularly special and it's nothing particularly awful. It it is just something about this person. Mm-hmm. And to just really have that compassion of like, okay, there's something else here. And to just try to recognize that that's playing. It doesn't mean, of course, that we would excuse any bad behavior, but it might mean there might be a little more compassion to say, hey, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. Okay. So uh, switching gears to you as a therapist, um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? So I think if I stick with, in my practice, those who are of adoption, because my practice includes trauma and includes grief as well, inside the adoption element of it, primarily the people that I work with that are um, people of color are coming from these international adoptions. Um, that's my exposure inside working with adoption. 
um, that there's a complexity towards uh, countries such as India. I've worked with individuals of adoption from India, from China, um, and from uh, some of the what were Soviet bloc countries. And to become familiar with being a white therapist means that there are going to be things that I really need them to tell me what their experience is without making them educate me. I need to go get my education regarding the circumstances of what surrounds adoption and how it happens when we're talking about China and all the nuances regarding, um, you know, you, for some adoptees, you can do a DNA swab and you'll be able to get connected to relatives, but for many parts for inner international adoption, that hasn't happened yet. That bank of, of resource and information isn't there. And so I can't apply the same ideas that they will, they have a chance to get back that information. And so working with those individuals is like really humbling to say like, no matter how much you know about adoption, there's always going to be an extra layer. There's always going to be a layer of complication of what the experience is. And it's on me to go get what the circumstances are and it's on together relationally both of us to sit in this moment of it is very unique for that individual Mm -hmm. Um, i have a couple adults of adoption who because they are from china and they were adopted by white families to also educate myself to hold myself accountable to educate myself of what it is like to be inside of a family where you look different and what all the pressures are, whether or not that family has even acknowledged that there is privilege and racism in their communities or even within their own family. And to give space for that individual to express it, they don't have to educate me. I have to educate myself on the circumstances and the dynamics. I have to be open to being with them and however that manifests for them. Mm-hmm. Okay. What could a new client expect from an initial session with you? Um, and what about on, on an ongoing basis? So working with NARM has really changed how I hold my initial sessions in particular. Um, one of the core pillars of NARM is that we, they call it a contract. And what it is, is really asking the client, what do you want from this time today? So that when I am sitting with a client, particularly on that initial interaction, that I'm not missing, this isn't about me just collecting data from them. They're giving time and they're giving money and they're giving presence to us being together in this. And I need to also keep in mind that as much as this is me understanding and being able to conceptualize what is going on for this client, it's keeping in the room that this is their time. And so NARM has really emphasized like we help Uh, find agency through making sure that as a therapist, we make sure that it's about what the client's needs are. And so even in my exploration of asking questions, I'm very much about asking questions when I have some context. So I'm not um, an an initial moment with me, that first meeting is not going to be a checklist. It's going to be a conversation. And sometimes I'll even pause and say, I want to learn about your family, like a, a 
dad and I can see the client's about to tell me a story they've told 20 times and they're totally disconnected from it, but they figure that's part of the assessment and, and first session checkboxes. And I'm like, okay, so I know that there's something regarding dad. I'm going to put that in the parking lot because I want to have a little more context because I want to keep the client present with me. In, in particularly in whatever they've asked for. Sometimes, you know, they're like, I just want to get everything off my chest. And I'm like, okay, so I have to remember that. And how can I collect the information I need? Um, so initial um, sessions, a lot of times I'm still asking, what do you want from this time? Because I don't want to lose them just because I want to, you know, get an idea of why are you here? Uh, although that's still part of it, obviously. For ongoing work, um, especially the first few, I keep checking in with clients to say, what was this like for you closer to the end to make sure I understand, you know, how much they understand of the therapeutic relationship. Is it actually a match? And I'm trying to encourage that they have, you know, some rights. And I think a lot of times I don't want that. I want, I want to be able to at least address that hierarchical nature of like, oh, since I'm the professional, I'm supposed to know what goes on. Um, I want to keep my client in with it. So I'll keep checking in with them the first couple sessions and, and eventually throughout, but definitely those first few sessions. And then our ongoing work, very much, I, I try to always ask that question at the beginning, what would you like for yourself? Knowing that it's actually a really hard question, but being able to say like, I want to make space for their need so that they can understand themselves. I am not about what book are you going to read? What homework are you going to do? I'm not about behavior modification. I think all behaviors, the majority of behaviors are neither good nor bad. However, they may be more useful or not for us depending on what's going on. So I'm not about behavior extinguishment or about trying to figure out how to alter or extinguish a behavior. I'm very much about trying to understand what is the strategy of why that walks in right now, what prevents us from what we really want for ourselves, and what is it like to move towards what we really want. And it's it's part of how NARM operates. So NARM is, a, is and I realize it just saying it, NARM is such a key component to how I do my work now. I really mm-hmm. want to know what you want. So I can follow it and not lead you on what I think you want, but let you discover what you need in this moment. Okay, cool. And usually the same issues will just keep popping up for a person, right? Eventually they'll even see like the same, I'm asking for the same thing. I'm asking for the same thing. And and so there's a way that NARM approaches it to help people go deeper and deeper with that. Got it. Okay. I'm going to have to do a little more research into NARM. You can tell I'm really a fan. (laughs) I can. Um, Okay. How would you say your clients describe or experience you? From the feedback I've gotten from them, um, they experience me as very curious, as very warm. Um, I'm half Canadian, so sometimes I'll joke like, I'm, I'm being very Canadian about this. I'm direct, <laughs> but I'm gentle in my directiveness. I give people a heads up, I'm about to ask a hard question. Here it is. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that is a hard question. You're right. And, and, you know, I know which, when I'm walking into that territory, I don't think all questions are hard. Um, They experience me as kind of quirky. I will say that. 
Um, and I think that just shows I, I try to be very genuine and very present when somebody asks me, how are you doing? I really stop and I ponder on that question. Um, and I, I think we, we have some fun together as well. Uh, there's laughter. There's a lot of laughter that happens in order to be able to navigate these really tricky, painful places. And my clients, I think, feel very comfortable with that. Which kind of flows into my next question. Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Absolutely. Um, I worked for, I think it was close to four years at what is now the Austin Center for Grief and Loss and sat with clients who had lost children, who had lost spouses of 40 years, who had lost spouses two weeks into their marriage. And um, I learned from my clients who have told me if they had not seen at least some water in my eyes, they would not be as comfortable because they perceive me being able to hold space for them as being touched by the intensity of their story. So when I get tears in my eyes or when I'm laughing, I'm always making sure the client understands it's because of what you bring in here. This is our relationship. Um, that the, there is an impact on me so that they can understand more about how they're bringing their energy and their experiences into the room. So I think it's for me, from an attachment perspective, um, being able to tear up and cry with a client, if they bring that in, um, obviously not sobbing, but just like to have tears in my eyes and say, like, I'm with you. To be able to laugh with a person and say, I'm with you in the absurdity of that. Um, and I've had clients really reflect that the type of work that we're approaching, that that's been really essential to them. You know, also, I think like crying in session with a client when you're, you know, when something particularly touching, intense is going on. I, I feel like sometimes through crying, we are modeling because sometimes people don't, sometimes people haven't cried for themselves, mm-hmm. you know? Very so much like, so. you know, you're sitting in a room with somebody and you've just told your story and this person is crying, like, I think that speaks to like, oh, well, maybe I need to have a reaction like that, you know, and modeling the appropriate response rather than mirroring numbness. Right, right. And that's why, you know, if I have, if I see tears, I'll actually say, you know, I let people know, like, I see a response there. And tears go with every emotion. Mm-hmm. They go with our joy and our anger and our sorrow. And that seems to free clients up to be able to tell me what those tears story really is. Mm-hmm. And if I tear up, as I've said, you know, when you sit with a mother who has lost a child, I'm not, I'm not sure I couldn't. Like, even if yeah, I was I, fighting it, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I could. I don't think I should, because if somebody is telling me something about a child and some of the stories that I've heard are just so I'm sure so deep in what they understand about this loss. It is a way to say like, I'm there with you as long Mm -hmm. as I don't, you know, and again, we're trained in this as long as I don't make it about me or as long as I don't carry it into like, we need to shut it down or we need to go further because of my need, or I think it should be this way, but Mm -hmm. just like it's in the room. 
and and it is a human way. I, th- I think we're the only animals that actually cry because of Thanks. emotion. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. How would you define holding space for someone? Oh, we all struggle with how to define that. Um, I think it's really having an open-heartedness and curiosity and really staying in the moment rather than having expectations of where this is going to go or what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in the room, there is that from a clinical perspective, but holding space is really letting the client experience themselves without getting lost and without feeling overwhelmed by the need to match this other person who's there. So it's, it's really... It's, it's really making space so that they can find themselves inside of that space. And so mm-hmm. our job isn't to keep our clients comfortable. Our right. job isn't to be our client's best friends. And some clients will say, that's right, you're not supposed to keep me comfortable or be my best friend. But we do give them the ability to sit in with something and find something for themselves, knowing that we are also a container of safety for them. So that's kind of how I view holding space for them. Cool. I like that definition. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? You know, I'm not sure it was a supervisor as much as another clinician who was just slightly ahead of me, who who in a lot of ways probably took on that kind of mentor supervisor role, mm-hmm. like giving input back. Um, which was, in a nutshell, it was like surround yourself with people who tell you you can. Like you can figure this out. You can make this happen. And then also sit there and say, what does that look like? So it's not surrounding ourselves in an echo chamber as much as it's surrounding yourself with like, what do you want and how can you prepare yourself to do that? What, what does that really look like? Okay. I think that's great. Great advice. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I would not be here without um, a few of those people. Like they really made, made space for me, but they really um, were like, of course you can do that. But what does that look like? And I'm like, oh. So it's not really advice as much as like they really brought me into like, oh, okay. Because I think when I think of advice from people, I think like there's amazing teachings that supervisors have given me and that people who are much more senior clinicians have given me and that um, individuals who are teachers have given me. Um, But when I think of like what is really, for me, the meat of that is like, what have they really added what advice have they added? Um, that's that's where I go. Okay. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? I am much more patient than I realized. Um, and again, this could be a reflection of being adopted. I don't know. Um, I didn't realize how present and warm and patient and silent I could be, how much I could hold 
without making it mine, without getting lost in it. Um, I don't think I realized that until I became a therapist, that all the work that I do with clients, I think sometimes people outside of our career go, oh, I could never do that, or I don't know how you do that, or you're so brave for doing that, or whatever they're saying about us. And I'm always like, yeah, it's kind of weird to say, like, I really love working with trauma. it's kind of weird to say like I choose to sit here and have people tell me about one of the worst days of their life when they lost somebody you know Mm -hmm. and it feels so good (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but it feels good because it it's like sinking into being a real into being into being in this moment and I don't think I would have known how to do that without being a therapist and without it being part of this is a requirement to be a therapist this is a requirement to find it in yourself and it's where I am most calm and free. Mm-hmm. It's where all the restrictions are gone is actually when I'm with clients. I, am my, I find I am in many ways my best self when I'm in session with clients. That's awesome. I think that's what we all kind of strive to be. <laughs> exactly. You know? exactly. I hope anyway. <laughs> Um, okay. What do you do to take care of yourself, you know, given that you're holding so much trauma? I stare at the wall a lot. Oh my gosh, I do the same thing. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Um, At least 30 minutes a day. (laughs) Yes. um, I find that after sessions, uh, after a full day, I give myself about half an hour to just kind of like unfold, unwind everything that was in there to like kind of let it sit um, absolutely. And then, you know, in COVID, I think it's a little bit different. I had taken up um, uh, Pilates to try to be physically healthier, and that kind of changed a little with something like COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what has come in is really, you know, spending more time with my dogs and a stray cat who adopted us, Gracie, and just really kind of using that presence for myself, mm-hmm. not just for my clients but also for me. And I think that's a lot of really good self-care for me. And it is a discipline for me to stop doing. Yeah, it is. One does have to be quite disciplined to do that. Very. You would think it would be the easier thing. Like, don't do stuff. You can just sit. It's like, no, actually going against the, you know, constant, what do I need to be doing? What do I need? What schedule? And just sitting and being is, is a radical concept in my world. I can relate. How would you define happiness? So years ago, I read this book called Stumbling on Happiness. And it kind of talked about happiness as like the zenith, the the apex, the peak of contentment. Mm -hmm. And it comes and goes so fast. Mm -hmm. So, so me, I try to, I try to land in this place of, um, comfort and contentment and then that's when happiness appears and happiness to me is kind of you know this brief and shiny sparkly moment of feeling expansive and connected at the same time Mm -hmm. that's probably as close as i can get to defining what happiness is oh it's so hard but i love that question um Here's a a vulnerable one, as if this whole thing hasn't already been vulnerable. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> what is the most embarrassing moment you've had as a clinician? You know, I saw that on your list and I went, oh, gosh, there are so many, aren't there? <laughs> um, what's one that I can share? Uh, so I was with a couple and at the end of session, um, it had never happened before. The uh, woman in this uh, partnership uh, asked if she could have a hug. Never happened before. And I, I was like, okay, there must be something up here. And as she gives me this very gentle hug, she whispers in my ear, your dress is on inside out. <laughs> and I was like, I just kind of had this moment of like, oh, of course it is. Because <laughs> they were my first client of the day, luckily, right? Um, yeah. And I, I wear these, you know, it's a single dress. It's, a, it's like a maxi dress. So it was very easy. I'll just say it was very easy for it to be inside out and for you not to notice. Um, and, and she just whispers that into my ear and I look at her and I go, thank you. And the, the partner that she had looks at her and said, what was that about? She goes, I will tell you in the car. And I'm sure that was not the most comfortable place because of course, if it's a couple, the other person is thinking some right. secret. And da, da, da. Right. So it was an interesting therapeutic thing that we addressed later. But in that moment, I was like, of course, that's what it is. So luckily I had enough time between clients to go and change and put my dress the correct way out. But I mean, the only way you knew was that there was, there was a tag on the back. Mm-hmm. Um, but that to me was a funny and embarrassing moment that I can share. That was really kind of her to do though. You know, Wasn't most it? people I don't think would. Yeah. It was very kind of her just to do it in such a way that was so gentle as well. Right. Yeah. 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 And That's I remember funny. she That's kind of had one. this kind of soft, you know, it was like, I got you, girl. Type feel of like <laughs> I got you. I'm not letting you through the day like that. And it was, it was, it was very gentle. That's cool. It's it's a it's a, I you know it's embarrassing, but I think it's also kind of a cool story. Of the ones I can think of, yeah, it's the <laughs> <laughs> it's the one I can claim the most. Yes. Well, thank you for being vulnerable there. Um, another vulnerable question. Are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy yourself? Yes and yes. Um, one of the reasons I think I became a therapist, well, I know one of the reasons I became a therapist was the therapist that I worked with for about five years. Um, and he still practices here in town. Um, we had a wonderful relationship and it was during a very difficult time in my life. And I realized so much of how I run my practice is actually modeled after the care that I got um, and the tools that I was able to bring from that. And it was attachment focused. Uh, and then currently I've gone in and out of finding the right therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think becoming a therapist has made it more complicated. Oh yeah, for sure. Because, <laughs> sure. you know, the people I would go to are people I already know or take trainings with. Right. They're your, um, your peers and colleagues. Exactly. And so I've, I've tried a couple different therapists and stuck with them for differing amount of times and learned something from being. But I find my intellectual part wants to intellectualize what I'm learning in order to apply mm-hmm. it to my practice as opposed to be the client. Um, and I currently have a therapist who um, I've, you know, it's more recent that I've started working with, but I'm very comfortable with them working on some, some things that have come up in my life. I'd like to make it a consistent thing. And again, that's part of that discipline um, of being able to do self-care. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. But I find well, it essential, the... just like I find consultation essential. Like to, oh yeah, we're gonna have stuff come up. We're gonna get hit with life stuff. We're gonna get hit with stuff that our clients tell us, and we're gonna have to, you know, figure out what's going on with us and avoid that countertransference if we can. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you or uh, adults of adoption? I think we have covered an awful lot today. We sure have. I feel like we we covered quite a bit of ground, actually. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Kimberly. It was a real pleasure. It was an absolute joy to sit here and spend time with you. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week, featuring Julia Aziz, licensed clinical social worker supervisor, on her practice and area of specialty, grief and loss. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash NextQuestPodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.